This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... In a sharp deviation from its traditional neutrality, Switzerland said on Monday that it will adopt all the sanctions that the EU has imposed. Neutrality changes over time. It's not written in stone. Not only does it have legal and political, but it also has moral implications. The United States is eager for Sweden and Finland to join NATO and strengthen the alliance. The law of neutrality applies to the military domain and says that the country is not allowed to participate in an armed conflict, either directly or indirectly. There was hope around the world that something would come of these peace talks and and the killing would stop. There will come a time when negotiations will have to take place and neutral states are really well positioned to offer mediation to rebuild bridges. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. Today we're going to discuss something very close to home, neutrality. With neutral Finland and Sweden applying to join NATO, does that spell the end of the neutral nation state? And what about that most famous neutral country of all, Switzerland? And as NATO grows, where is the United Nations and its own concept of neutrality and impartiality? To join me today, I have Sarah Helmuller, a specialist in peacebuilding at Geneva's Graduate Institute, Jean-Marc Rickley, Head of Global and Emerging Risks at Geneva's Centre for Security Policy, and our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. Welcome to you all. My first question to all of you, perhaps Sarah first, with a situation like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, people I've been talking to here in Switzerland have said, how can you be neutral? It's so clear who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. There's no point to neutrality. Sarah, what would your response to that be? Is there a purpose to neutrality? Thank you very much. Um, yes, I don't think at all that actually neutrality becomes redundant in a situation like this, because I think in a situation that we are currently observing with increasing polarization in international politics, with massive uh, mobilization with Western governments announcing drastic increases in their defense spending and sending weapons to Ukraine. I think everyone still knows that in the long term, however, we need some sort of a political solution to this conflict. And to help find the solution, neutral states can actually play a very important role by acting as host states for talks or by providing good offices. I think, however, it is important to recall that neutrality does not mean to remain silent or not to have a position in situations of um, violations of international law. And especially for Switzerland, of course, as a small state, Switzerland has a particular interest in protecting international law and also protecting, of course, the norm of territorial integrity. But neutrality means not to support any of the conflict parties militarily either directly or indirectly. So I think it has a value because neutral states can play a particular role in helping finding a political solution to the conflict. Jean-Marc, what do you think? Because we, we have heard this concept of good offices, but, you know, in this particular latest distressing war in Europe, nobody seems to want good offices, or certainly not Swiss ones. Well, first of all, um, neutrality has to be understood as a tool in the global power race, meaning that 
States have different strategy in foreign relations. Some are opting for cooperation and alliances, and others are rather relying on autonomy and neutrality. And so neutrality plays a function in the global balance of power. For instance, the neutral states during the Cold War, you had the Nordic neutrals, Finland and, and Sweden, and the Central European neutrals, Switzerland and, uh, and Austria. And basically, they played some kind of role in terms of providing ways, buffers, if you want, uh, between the two sides. Now, when it comes to neutrality, you have the law of neutrality and the policy of neutrality. And good offices are part of this policy of um, neutrality. It is true that right now uh, the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, is in a, in a deadlock and people neither Russia nor Ukraine would like to negotiate right now. But there will come a time when the negotiations will have to take place. And neutral states are really well positioned to basically offer mediation, to um, offer possibility to uh, rebuild bridges between parties that are no longer talking to each other. Danny, I see already you have your hand up, long-term resident in Switzerland. What's your thought on this? I have two quotations. One is from a Swedish uh, politician who said neutrality is the political position of a small country surrounded by three powerful neighbors. And the second is from a legal advisor to the Swiss foreign ministry who told me that he spent 25 years of his career on one word. And what that means to me is that neutrality changes over time. It's not written in stone. Not only, Jean-Marc, does it have legal and political, but it also has moral implications. And it does seem to me the last Swiss study of neutrality was 1993. And some of the people in Switzerland are calling for a new report and even a national debate on neutrality. So I think we should say that time is a factor in saying what is the policy of a country. Well, indeed, it's not set in stone because what have we seen? Two other neutral countries, not the same neutrality as Switzerland, we understand that, but Finland and Sweden have applied to join NATO. The strong support of the United States as Finland and Sweden began the process of joining NATO. Two great democracies to join the strongest, most powerful defensive alliance in the history of the world. Sarah and Jean-Marc, does that end their neutrality in your eyes or are they simply joining a defensive alliance yeah uh, when a country joined a military alliance it is impossible for this country to remain neutral uh, because in nato you have article 5 which is a collective defense provision that obliges a country to uh, rescue or help a, a fellow uh, ally in case he would be attacked and so Although Daniel said that there are moral implications, first, there are legal implications. And the law of neutrality are actually quite clear. It's a 1907 uh, Hague Convention. And basically, when one of the first provisions is neutral states cannot take part in international armed conflict and it excluding any type of alliances. And then uh, neutral states must ensure their own uh, self-defense. And 
cannot uh, put their territory at disposal of the belligerents. So when it comes to the Nordic neutral, indeed, uh, this is a massive change in their security policy, especially uh, for uh, Sweden that had been neutral for the last 200 years, a bit less for uh, Finland that uh, was neutral since the end of uh, the Second World War. And so they are reacting to a change in the global balance of power. When it comes to Austria and Switzerland, two countries that first Switzerland has centrality since the war in Mariano in 1515, recognized by the Treaty of Vienna in 1815, and Austria a bit uh, later, obviously, after the Second World War. The situation for Central European neutral changed dramatically with NATO expansion. Why? Because basically they were completely surrounded by NATO countries. This is not the case with Finland and Sweden. Therefore, the geostrategic predicament is very different now between the Nordic neutrals and the Central uh, European neutral. And to answer uh, Daniel's criticism about neutrality, neutrality and morality, neutrality doesn't mean that uh, you don't have an opinion about what is going on. It just means that you maintain equidistance between the warring parties so that when the situation is ripe, you can offer services that other countries, especially allied countries, cannot offer. Sarah, I think you wanted to come in and perhaps didn't get a chance. I'm going to give you a a chance to come in now. Yeah, I think following the discussion, I think um, what is important to maybe clarify is what is what part of neutrality is actually set in stone and what part actually changes. And we heard the distinction between the law of neutrality and the politics of neutrality and also that the law of neutrality is very clear. So the law of neutrality applies to the military domain and says that the country is not allowed to participate in an armed conflict either directly or indirectly if it wants uh, to remain neutral. And this then also excludes, of course, um, a military alliance. And then the politics of neutrality, they can be interpreted differently. And this is also, this part is also what has changed a lot in Switzerland, for instance. If you look at um, uh, how neutrality was interpreted during the Cold War, many interpreted it as excluding, for instance, even a membership in the uh, United Nations. And now after the end of the Cold War, of course, Switzerland has become a member of the United Nations and now also soon an elected member even of the UN Security Council. So it is this political aspect of neutrality that actually changes and that also adapts, of course, to shifts and changes in broader world politics. And I think that's also the part that explains why we always have these discussions around the concept of neutrality. Does it have an image problem at the moment, though? I mean, we see that Sweden and Finland have been hailed, you know, in the Western media anyway. Oh, look, fantastic. They're joining NATO. And there's this kind of look at Switzerland. Yeah, same old, same old. They're not doing anything. Danny, you had your hand up. Yeah, I mean, just a quick comment about the president and foreign minister, Swiss president and foreign minister Cassis did say when Switzerland joined European sanctions that there were shared values. So the morality of that can't be ignored. Flanked by his finance, defense, and justice ministers, Swiss President Ignacio Cassis said extraordinary times called for extraordinary measures. L'attaque de la Russie contre l'Ukraine est inacceptable. I want to come back to NATO. NATO was formed after the Second World War, dealing with the threat of the Soviet Union. And the question I have is after 1991, when the Warsaw Pact imploded and stopped, Why didn't NATO stop? 
And I was involved in NATO opening actually the office in Kiev, in Moscow, in the early 1990s. And our role was to try to include Russia. So in a sense, if you say, what has NATO been doing since the end of the Soviet Union? Uh, that would be a valid question. Now it's an obvious question because Russia is being aggressive. But for many years, Russia was excluded. There was a Russian-NATO dialogue that didn't get very far. So the question comes up, why all of a sudden NATO becomes so important? Why wasn't it more inclusive about Russia before? Sure, Mark, I'd, I'd like to ask you a bit more about that. I was reading different points of view from ordinary people in Sweden and Finland in a, in a newspaper this morning, and a number of them said, just what you said, this is a huge step and a real shift away from our neutrality. And ideally, I would have liked NATO to disappear with the Warsaw Pact, but it didn't. And actually, now we need it. Well, there are two things here. Uh, the first one is the reaction in the neutral states uh, population towards what is going on now and discussion on, on neutrality, and especially in Switzerland. So neutrality is a security policy instrument. But over time, neutrality has also acquired an identity function because basically uh, what binds together Swiss identity, unlike the French who have common history, common language, common religions. That's not the case in Switzerland. So the Swiss identity is profoundly a political identity that relies on the principle of direct democracy, federalism, and neutrality. So the geostrategic situation might have changed. That would require changing your instrument. But the identity of the Swiss people is still very strong. And so that's why you have in Switzerland this very high rate of acceptance of neutrality that are above 90% in the population. Now, when it comes to NATO, it is indeed clear that after the end of the Cold War, NATO was a bit uh, soul-searching mode. But you have to remember, you know, 1990, 1991, lots of uncertainty about how would Russia develop, whether uh, Eastern European countries would actually fall back into authoritarianism. So basically what NATO did was to develop some institution that would actually integrate these states to actually provide a dialogue. And some later decided to join. Obviously, with time passing, especially with Kosovo, NATO went beyond its basically uh, territorial uh, border and that marked a shift in the strategy of NATO. During the 2000s, NATO was involved also in Afghanistan. But at the same time, you have also Russia that became increasingly more aggressive towards its, its near abroad. And basically what we've seen over time is that Russia uh, invaded Georgia. So here, if you talk to people in Eastern Europe, it was not NATO that forced them to join the institution. It was the population of these countries that democratically decided, okay, we want to join NATO. Just before his army invaded Ukraine, Vladimir Putin outlined his motivations in a speech. His first and main argument NATO's expansion. Sarah, do you want to come into that? I mean, since we're talking about countries joining one camp or another, including NATO, because your speciality is, is peace building, 
Do you see different routes to, to peace building than NATO? Yeah, I think joining NATO and, you know, also the increased defense budget, that's all kind of in the, the sense of um, defense, a, a military logic, I would say, to approaching this uh, situation that we have at the moment. But again, I think wars have, of course, a military side, but it's also politics by other means. So politics also always have to come in. And as mentioned before, then for, for the political side, those who may not be part of these uh, military alliances, those who have taken uh, still also a legal neutrality, will be um, very much needed, I think, in the future to pursue the, the political option and to find a political way also out of this conflict. And we know from, from every conflict that, of course, conflicts polarize heavily. Each state or, you know, also in, in, in other types of conflicts, each, each individual is quickly compelled to take sides. Um, and we often have this black and white thinking. But I think especially now and especially as we are seeing also in this emerging multipolar world order and increasing kind of block um, making and, uh, you know, going back to very high geopolitical competition, I think it becomes even more important that we have some actors who actually don't necessarily, at least militarily, align to these blocks, even if morally and, and sometimes also politically it's quite clear where, for instance, Switzerland belongs. Danny? Yeah, I wanted to come back to the view for Moscow, because if Sarah wants to get a peace at the end of this war, we have to empathize with what the view for Moscow is. 2008, Jean-Marc knows, NATO ministerial in Bucharest, someone comes up late at night with the idea that Georgia and Ukraine will one day be members of NATO. Now, they weren't members of the membership action plan, but someone said that, and it's in the final communique. Now, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States did not accept Soviet missiles in Cuba. We know that John Kennedy had to take the missiles out of Turkey. No one wants to have NATO on their border. So it does seem to me that that was, from the view from Moscow, a provocation and perhaps an error. And as George Kennan has said, Kissinger has said, the expansion of NATO has been a provocation. Uh, and how are we going to get out of that? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, there are two separate things. I mean, I suppose we, we should stress that this could be true, and perhaps these mistakes were made 15, 20 years ago. Nothing justifies an unprovoked invasion of a sovereign state. Agreed, Imogen. Um, I'm just pointing that out historically. No, no but it, it's interesting because I've had quite heated dinner party conversations about exactly this, not trying to justify in any way Putin's actions, but wondering what are the history books will look like in 100 years' time, how we write about this period from the end of the Cold War through to now. But this, this program about neutrality, it's not just about Swiss neutrality, but about different ideas of neutrality. And since we're in Geneva, which is the home of the United Nations European headquarters and its humanitarian arm, it theoretically has to have a role where there's conflict, ideally in preventing an ending and mediation, but also in humanitarian. And that concept of neutrality and impartiality underpins that role. And yet here, it's not working. It is clear that there are two different positions on what is happening in Ukraine. According to the Russian Federation, what is taking place is a special military operation with the objectives that were announced. 
According to the UN, in line with the resolutions passed by the General Assembly, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a violation of its territorial integrity and against the Charter of the United Nations. The UN in New York and the Security Council is obviously blocked by the Russian veto, but that doesn't mean that the organizations in Geneva, the specialized ones, are still not functioning. Uh, the difficulty, for example, for the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is neutral and impartial, they continue to be in the field. And we saw that their president, Peter Maurer, was in Kiev. He was also in Moscow. So the organizations in Geneva continue, although the human rights organization has more, the council has more difficulty than others. Well, again, we come back to this. It, it's such an egregious assault on Ukraine that some people expect every organization to take sides. This is awkward for the humanitarian agencies. Yeah, I think, I mean, the UN is indeed often kind of uh, perceived as, uh, as powerless. But I think maybe two points here. First is that the UN is still the only forum where actually the major powers meet regularly. And I think, you know, coming back to what we said about peacemaking and the options uh, for peace, open communication channels are a condition for, you know, engaging or embarking on the road of, of finding a peace agreement. So the fact that they actually meet regularly in that forum is very important, I think. And then second, the UN is, of course, much more than the UN Security Council. And it has taken some action. I mean, and the UN uh, General Assembly has actually adopted resolutions in the past few months that are quite groundbreaking. They have come together under the Uniting for Peace formula. They have um, voted to exclude Russia from the Human Rights Council. They have also adopted a resolution basically deciding that the permanent five member states of the UN Security Council have to justify the use of their veto. So there has been quite some movement in the General Assembly. And then, of course, also the, the Secretary General has had quite an important role also in offering good offices, his visits to both uh, Moscow and Kiev, negotiating humanitarian access, uh, also negotiating the evacuation from Mariupol. So I think, of course, we can look at the UN Security Council and say, ah, the UN is ineffective, but I think we have to look beyond uh, that to see what is going on. And as mentioned, also, of course, the different agencies, programs and funds that provide humanitarian aid and, and relief. So again, we can ask uh, what measures have been effective, but the UN remains an instrument for dialogue amongst the most powerful states, including Russia. And I think this needs to be preserved by all means. Kiev, the head of the United Nations, witnessed the Russian devastation with his very own eyes. There is no way a war can be acceptable in the 21st century. Look at that. Jean-Marc, do you, do you want to add to that in terms of, I mean, is the United Nations role as a stabilizing factor, a maintaining of security factor, is it waning? I mean, Sarah had a lot of uh, positive things to say there, but there's an awful lot of questions I'm hearing, like, where's the UN? It's completely powerless. Well, you know, that's not a new criticism. I mean, the UN uh, has been plagued by that kind of criticism since its uh, foundation. The reason being that was mentioned before, basically, it's an imperfect system where you have uh, five powers that have a veto power. What 
would have been the alternative. The alternative would have been the model of the League of Nations, where there was no veto power, but basically uh, the great power of the time did not feel obliged, compelled by the decision adopted by the League of Nations, and therefore didn't have any teeth. It's an imperfect system, and of course, when it comes to the maintenance of peace and security, there has been really rare occasions when there have been agreement on the Security Council, uh, one exception was, for instance, the 1991 uh, Gulf War. That was a UN-mandated operation at uh, Chapter 7, and that was, at the time was an agreement among the, the P5. But now you also have to look at all the different functions that the UN is playing in terms of different specialized agencies that are actually working on the when it comes to World Food Programs, uh, when it comes to other international organization. And also what is uh, very important is that the UN is the main organization where states can continue to keep a dialogue and some interaction. The Red Cross again sought to reach the besieged city of Mariupol this week as people tried to flee, all as more atrocities are discovered around Kyiv. And the Red Cross has asked the Russian government for permission to open an office here in Rostov-on-Don to service eastern Ukraine, an indication, perhaps, that this won't be a short-term conflict. If you allow me, just on uh, the questions of the ICRC, the ICRC relies on impartiality and neutrality. And unlike a more advocative organization like Doctor Without Border, uh, who are basically denouncing what is going on, the policy of the ICRC is basically never to comment what is going on. So some people would say it's immoral when you are witnessing blatant violations of human rights. But by doing this, the ICRC very often is the only organization that managed to get access to prisoners of war. And in the current crisis in Ukraine, uh, you have the ICRC that, work, that is working with uh, the UN, for instance, for the humanitarian corridor uh, to help the Ukrainian uh, soldiers that were uh, stuck in, in Mariupol, for instance. So. Here you have a really good example about, yes, sometimes centrality from a moral perspective could be considered questionable, but then you have to look to finality. What is the objective? And the objective is to get access to people in need, uh, whichever regime they are. Danny, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I found it interesting to follow what John Mark said, that in the vote in the General Assembly in the UN in New York on condemning Russian aggression, Although there were 141, 145 countries in favor, there were still 35 countries against who abstained. And among those countries, China, India, and Brazil, those large and powerful countries. And the president of Brazil did say that he hoped that Brazil could remain neutral. So the question of neutrality is, is not just something in Switzerland, Central Europe, uh, etc. It's also something that in Africa, Latin America, and other places, countries are trying to take a neutral position in this particular situation. Or a non-aligned position, I guess. Slightly Historically, that viewers. would be the term. We are actually, amazingly, almost at the end of our allotted 30 minutes. It's been quite a wide-ranging discussion, an awful lot to think about, and all different kind of nuances of what, how a situation like this can evolve and what role neutrality, whether it's a, a nation or an organisation, can play. So I want to ask each of you as a final short comment. We touched on it a little bit around the middle of the programme. Neutrality is just right now not a popular word. And you have all made the case for it having its 
functions. But if you were talking to somebody in Britain, somebody in the United States, somebody in Ukraine, look, these are the benefits. This is how it could help you. It doesn't just help the Swiss. It doesn't just help the Finns, the Austrians, the Swedes. This is how neutrality can actually benefit the wider world. Who wants to answer that first? A rush to put your hands up, I see. Jean-Marc. <laughs> I thought it was it was uh, Danny. But no, I mean, if I would talk to, uh, to an American citizen, I would just say that, well, you no longer have diplomatic relations with Iran and uh, a country is actually dealing with your diplomatic relations and that, that is uh, Switzerland. In every international system, you will always need actors that are able to mediate. And it is shifting. We've seen in the last decade, uh, Qatar played an important role in mediating uh, between countries and different Islamic uh, groups. And so this function of mediation will never disappear. And what we see emerging is a logic of block, especially between China and the United States. And I think that what we will need in the future, that kind of skills, you know, to build bridges will uh, only increase in the future, especially if the world becomes much more polarized. Danny? Well, I mean, the object for me is to end the fighting. And my question is, can you be neutral about neutrality? And if being neutral helps to end the fighting, then I'm all in favor of it. Sarah, last words to you, particularly because you're the specialist in peace building, and that is where we hope eventually we're going to end up. Yeah, so I think, you know, in, in simple terms, peacemaking is really based on the consent of conflict parties. So peacemaking is not something that you impose, or mediation is not something that you impose, but the parties have to have kind of a minimal consent to be willing to look for a negotiated solution. And this also means that they have to agree to a third party or to a mediator. And neutrality can actually be an enabling factor that enables them actually to agree because they don't have the impression that the mediator will basically bring their own views or, or, or their own bearing on, on the conflict. And I think this is shown by the long-standing tradition of Switzerland actually as a mediator. And in that sense, I think neutrality of one state also comes to the advantage of all the other states because they are important peacemakers in the end. Okay, Sarah Heldmuller, Jean-Marc Rickley, Daniel Warner, thank you all very much for joining us a lot to think about there and let's hope indeed that somebody's good offices will be called upon very soon to talk about ending the conflict and, and building some peace. This has been Inside Geneva. Thanks very much for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. 
we uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.